0: The doc is in, and there's no need to stay in the waiting room for this episode of Health 411. Join Dr. Jonathan Karp as we discuss topics from health insurance to personal diet and exercise to -to up-to-date conversations in the healthcare industry and more. Health 411 is underwritten by the Health Studies Institute of Ride University. Now, let's see what the diagnosis is for this week's episode of Health 411.
1: 1077 the Bronx, 1077 thebronxcom proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are recording from the Bronx studios at Ryder University. Welcome to Health 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Carp, The Ryder University Health Studies Institute and the Rebovich Institute for New Jersey Politics presents Health 411, Truthful Health Information to expand knowledge and perspective. This program communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business as well as the politics of health and health care. Mandy McLean, our producer, and I are in the studio, and we welcome you to listen in our, on our conversation. We're going to begin our conversation today talking about um, the mental health risks um, associated with the COVID-19 pandemic, and we're going to start the conversation talking about some of the things that are happening in young adults, college-age students, the basically 18 to 20. Four year old group. This is a significant group to talk about, not only because we are on a college campus here at Rider University, Mandy, but also because this is a group when the pandemic first started, going back in ancient history now, six or seven months ago, there were people who were thought not to be affected by the virus. The early data coming out of China and into Italy suggested that the people most sensitive to getting infected with the virus were the elderly or the sick. And there were ideas that children might be immune from it or protected from it. And young adults might not be protected or, or might not get infected by it. We now know that isn't true, correct?
2: yeah because it's something that we've seen more in younger people or like college age people especially with universities going back and then sending kids home because of outbreaks on campus
1: yeah that's actually a controversial thing but what's exploding is this sort of infection rate in the 18 to 24 year old group and you know we've we've talked about this on other programs where you know people in that age group have parties which become super spreader events it's not just like you know older men and women going to motorcycle groups or motorcycle, um, you know, meetings and spreading this around the community, college students are also spreading the COVID-19 virus to each other um, and potentially to family members and sick people and things like that. And one thing that's coming about because of that is young adults are, you know, might not be as higher risk for dying from infection from COVID, but there are other things that are happening to them, especially in the mental health arena. And I was looking at some recent data that came out of the Centers for Disease Control, and it looks like about 41% of adults, young adults, the age 18 to 24, report at least one adverse mental or behavioral health condition. Really? 41%. That's a lot of people.
2: That is.
1: Yeah. And, and Mandy, when we were getting ready to talk about um, um, what we were gonna do for today's show, what came across your cell phone?
2: I got an email from our university mm-hmm. about counseling and our, what's it called? The writer Counseling Service. Mm-hmm. And it's about like who you can call if you live on campus, who you can call if you live off campus.
1: Right. And this is a thing that's happening even before the pandemic mental health services in university settings were extremely taxed. Uh, We've had some people for counseling services on Health 411 a couple years ago, and they were just talking about how, not just at Rider, but across the land, um, people of college age are using counseling services more and more, and the demand is very, very high. And like I said, 41% you know, for 41% of people, 18 to 24, are reporting at least one mental health or behavioral condition. It's even more pronounced if you go de- deeper into some of this data. You see that the, the you know the symptoms of anxiety and depression are very very high in this group, um, to the point where about 25% it's one in four people um, report seriously considering suicide. And this is, a, this is a big deal. Yes. Um, you know, being infected with a virus is one thing, but getting to the point where your symptoms are severe enough that you want to end your own life is a pretty significant deal. So it's worth talking about and making people aware of some of the things that are out there.
2: Of course it is, because I feel like, I don't know how to verbalize what I was thinking, mm-hmm. but I feel like it's something that's not talked about enough, and it should be considered, like, more mm-hmm. in, like, a lot of different ways?
1: Yeah, well, over, just to, I mean, not to make this all about numbers, but almost 63% of people 18 to, you know, young adults, 18 to 24, reported, um, you know, anxiety and depression. And this is a big deal, especially in a group that was originally considered protected from from the virus. And so explore a little bit. What's changed? Well, why do you think people in your age group, Mandy, might be experiencing these sort of um symptoms
2: um mainly because now we're more like separated and it's been like a longer time because a lot of people my age depend on going to campus to get like away and to get that change and now they don't have it
1: Uh, and I, i think that is a part of it i think part of the normal expectations for being in college or being of that age is that you get to go away to school, you get to see your friends. Um, In an an earlier show, Mandy, we talked about, you know, some of the risks of coming back to campus and said, you know, what do people typically do is they hug their friend they haven't seen for over the summer, you know, and all these sort of things are sort of contraindicated for somebody during the the COVID-19 pandemic um and all these things that's part of it you know college life is not like it used to be you know definitely not yeah like not it. like any, is it anything like it was your first year here
2: definitely not like there's barely anybody here when I was here the Greeks were so prominent mm-hmm. the freshmen probably don't even know how many Greek orgs we have I used to wake up Saturday mornings because U-House was blasting music the house next to me was screaming because it was like sweetheart weekend. That's <laughs> definitely not happening now.
1: Yeah, um, and those, those are some interesting things because some of your memories about what college was like for you um, are related to social things. Yes, you know you you know you didn't start off saying oh you know my classes were different, you know you went right to the social aspects of school. You're nodding again. <laughs> You know, and you know, if you talk to parents, you'd say, oh, you know, it's all about even the advertising advertising that schools like Ryder do in other schools. It's all about the academics, the student-professor ratio, it's what do our graduates do? But where did you go right away?
2: I mean, I'm more of, like, a social person, though. Like, my classes haven't changed. Like, I'm still watching movies.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right. You, you're you like a, a film and cinema. You're still watching movies, but you might not be doing it, you know, with your classmates face-to-face. You might be doing it remotely. Uh, you know, I'm still teaching, but my lectures have my students, you know, via Zoom. It's all on the computer. Spending a lot of time talking to the computer now instead of talking to the students face-to-face. And all these things have changed. The ability to, you know... You know talk you know I, I i don't have to say to the students stop talking to each other you're disturbing the people around you in, in a remote classroom that's true um because all, all that social connection stuff has been sort of halted by the fact that everyone's sitting in you know their kitchen table their bedroom some well, actually some students watching their cars other students are sitting outside it like in under the tents here on the rider campus where eating is taking place The dining halls have these tents outside and so all this sort of stuff has, is changing the nature of the college experience. And we know, because we watch the national news, that this, a lot of these spreader events are the things that you were talking about, which were these parties that people were having. And in some schools, students have been suspended for going to parties, yes. e- even in dorms. Yep, we've heard about that. I have. Yeah, and it was actually controversial. I think there was a, one of the larger schools, um, it might have been, um, northeastern or northwestern one of those schools suspended 11 students and like kept their tuition i just saw that yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah um other other places have banned those events that you talked about banned those you know fraternity sorority kinds of events even um it, it not having not to be an attack on the greek system but even like sports teams might have like an off-campus sport house where the golf team lives or the Uh, soccer team lives or the baseball team lives they're not allowed to have those parties now so a lot of the social stuff that people would use as part of their college experience has sort of ended and you know we have a group of people you know the 18 to 24 year olds who are going through a lot of self-exploration a lot of things and we start to see you know a high percentage of people in that group having mental health concerns having mental health issues on top of what's going on naturally, the COVID-19 experiences exasperated that and made it worse for them, especially on college campuses. And it's something to be aware of. If you are the parent of, a, of, of, of somebody in that age group, you need to be aware. Personally, I'm a parent of a college-age student. I have a son who, not to out him, but I will a little bit, who was involved with a sport on his college campus. He was texting some of his friends about some things. You know, They got concerned. They reported his text to the coach, and the coach like called me. He wanted to talk about it because the radar is up. Pe- uh, people on college campuses know about these things, and they're just very, very aware because of the risks, and nobody wants to um, be that campus where students have done yes. hard to them themselves or others. Um, unfortunately, with this segment, we're running out of time. We'll be right back. More healthcare talk after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The bronk and 1077 thebronkcom
0: This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. Health 411 is underwritten by the Health Studies Institute of Ride University. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Carp, only on 1077 The Bronx.
1: 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are recording from The Bronx Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Carp. Mandy and I are here talking about the behavioral responses to COVID-19. This is a very interesting topic, especially in the age group that are on College campuses, because this virus, COVID nineteen, the SARS coronavirus two, which causes COVID nineteen, can be considered something that not only affects our body, if it also affects our mind. Yes. And we're talking about some of the issues that are related to it. Uh, Mandy, if somebody asked you, um, you know, what's what are some of the symptoms? What it's like to be infected with COVID nineteen? What kinds of things would are generally said?
2: coughing.
1: Yeah, Um, absolutely. Things related to breathing. It's generally considered a respiratory illness. Um, There are fevers. There's chills. People feel tired. They cough a lot, but it's often a a, a dry cough. They lose the sense of smell. Sometimes it's associated with diarrhea, nausea. Um, These are some of the symptoms that are, you know, if you look at the list of symptoms that are related to COVID-19, and what are people asked to do if they do have these things and they are infected?
2: Quarantine.
1: Quarantine, and how long is the typical quarantine?
2: 14 days.
1: That's right. So we're asked to not only socially distance, but if you do happen to get infected, unfortunately, people are asked to quarantine for about 14 days, and over those 14 days, the idea is the symptoms would, would diminish in their severity. Also, you become less infectious to other people around you. That's why we wear masks, that's why people sometimes wear shields, or all those kinds of, um, you know, personal protection equipment kinds of devices. But what people are figuring out in the college age population, but is not just in the college age population, in all people, that COVID-19 might not be just a short illness. It might be a, an illness that has much more longer lasting consequences. Yes. And so they're looking at it as, this thing is there's that sort of acute COVID infection when your body is dealing with this virus through your you know AC2, ACE2 receptors. But there's a thing that's being now called long COVID. These are the long lasting things that can last not just weeks, what, months now that people are seeing, and this is an effect on people's body outside of their GI tract or the respiratory tract. And the brain is part of that. And people are reporting, you know, anxiety, depression, sort of an. N- unclear thinking. It's uh, it's uh, it, uh, it's sort of close to. I'm making the analogy. Some people who undergo chemo, uh, ke- you know, chemotherapy for cancer treatments go through this chem- something called chemo brain, is where your you, you know your memory isn't there, your your thinking isn't straight, you're not sharp, and so what they're figuring out is. That there's mental health problems, then people are estimating between one third and one half of COVID 19 patients are experiencing mental health problems, including anxiety, depression fatigue, abnormal sleeping, unclear thoughts. That's a pretty high percentage for this disease that people think, oh, the effects are about two weeks long, like you said, the quarantine, and then they go away and then, you know, then you're protected maybe at least for a little while. Um, and these, you know, adverse health symptoms can affect other organs of your body, not just bleeding, you know, a leaky vasculature, but your brain, your brain is part of your body. It's one of the organs of your body and it works has, you know, has some significant things that allow us to interact with the world around us, which is why you need a nervous system. And these adverse mental health symptoms, um, not are all, not only there, but according to the Centers for Disease Control, um, these mental health symptoms are disproportionate in young adults, which is sort of very interesting. In the last segment, we were talking about these are young adults who might not die with yeah. the same, you know, um, your frequency as some of the older people or people with comorbid conditions. But these are people who have these long lasting, what's sometimes called long COVID that outlast that two week period. And there's a, there was an article pretty recently in the New York times that called it, they were interviewing some people and this, this one woman who had it called it a wheel of misfortune where these sort of, you know, non super debilitating, non super bad things were just happening repeatedly to the patients and this is a brand new disease so if you're a healthcare worker and you're dealing you know, somebody comes in and says oh I just don't feel right my stomach's upset I'm sort of confused it's not an acute injury kind of thing it's not yeah. something that you know thou shalt treat right away cuz you're in you know immediate peril this is one of those nebulous sort of amorphous things that are very very hard to deal with And if you've had a COVID infection, you're obviously, you don't need to be put on a respirator right away, but this sort of mental fog um, um, is not a pretend thing. It's a real thing and it's hard to treat because it's often not taken seriously. And I would argue the, the literature is quite clear, especially among women who report sort of these nebulous things to healthcare workers, they're often ignored you know not taken seriously or if you're a young adult oh you're you know you're 20 years old you're fine don't worry about it i don't think they have a we, a way to deal with this stuff other than um, education and, a, and and awareness that these people are not making this stuff up
2: yes yeah. i i just kind of feel like it's something that wasn't taken as serious as it should have been at first which is why now everybody's seeing the effects and really, like, kind of trying to, like... I know what I'm trying to say. I don't know how to say it, but they're trying to, like, help more now because they're mm-hmm. seeing the things that have, like, started by them not, like...
1: Right, and, and I, l- let, me, let me inject a little bit because you're struggling for the words a little bit. I think one of the things that's happening is the COVID you know, inf- pandemic is a brand new thing. It, it's, it's similar to, but it's different from other kinds of viruses and other kinds of infections that have spread around the world. Um, and so people are learning that we're also in a world where people can connect. So uh, often what's happening is that People who are having these infections and having these long-term effects that don't go away—this mental fog, the confusion, the not, just not feeling right—there, it'd be great if there were support groups, if there were therapists who understood it, who had, had seen it come, had seen it go, and that part of the success in therapy, when people engage in talk therapy, irrespective of the kind, of whether it's cognitive behavioral therapy or some other modality is that the people doing it have seen it before they know sort of how things progress they know the time course they know the questions the answers because COVID is so new that's not really happening the therapists are learning the physicians are learning but we also live in the world of connection through social media and so support groups are popping up people are finding help with each other and it's sort of one of these interesting things if you get this infection, you're asked to, as you pointed out before, Mandy, to do what? Quarantine, separate yeah. yourself. But here are a, a host of behavioral symptoms that might be helped by what?
2: Just like, just talking sometimes. Yeah, not just quarantining,
1: like, yeah. making connections with other people. And it'd be great if those connections could be face to face, but we, we can't do that often. Now the connections sometimes should be and have to be remote. You know, obviously people are not going to be able to, you know, touch, you know, the the hands-on, the idea of a hands-on healer is sort of a, is not happening right now. You know, know, it's a lot of happening remote. And so people are finding support groups. People are realizing that they're not going crazy. You know, um, the symptoms in, you know, uh, you know, East Asia, Italy, you know, other parts of Europe, the United States. These people who are reporting the long COVID symptoms, the, the symptoms are sort of the same. The, you can't have this collective, you know, worldwide hallucination that these things are not being real. And it, it it it's it's education of not just the patients, but also education of healthcare workers, education of the behavioral therapists. These are all the kinds of things that are really leading to understanding the COVID-19 infection as a long disease that affects the mind in addition to the lungs and, and, and the GI tract like that. And what we're seeing is it's not a short disease. You know, there's been a huge uptick, not just on college campuses, but across the world for a need for these things. And we know that mental health is not always a high priority in our healthcare system, or necessarily healthcare system in other parts of the world. In fact, it's one of those areas that's very, very hard to make sure it's funded. And the Affordable Care Act was, Obamacare, was one of the, in our country, nationwide attempts to ensure some sort of minimum protection for people, not just, you know, paying for appendectomies or whatever, you know, medical kinds of treatments, but for sort of this preventative medicine which, you know, a generation ago was a bad word. You don't prevent disease. You wait for disease to occur and then you treat it. But the idea of preventative medicine, especially in the mental health world, is a a real thing. And so this is something that people need to be on the lookout for. How could it? Another question that comes out, how could COVID infection be a long-term disease? I thought it was caused by a virus.
2: That's very true. How is it like
1: how does Came that happen? You know,
2: so long. Is
1: there, a, could there be a biology that sort of explains what's going on with that? And I think what uh, immunologists would say, or certainly my background in, in, in neuroscience would say in neural immune interactions is that you can have pits of the, you might not have active virus replicating and doing things, but you could have parts of the virus viral proteins that are still in the body that are still being responded to by the body and this sort of immune response sort of subclinical immune response is ongoing and it can go on for you know weeks or months outside that two week type thing i mean a lot has to be learned and this is sort of important um like i said it's an education kinds of things um, and, you know, people are finding self-group, therapies have to be worked out, all the details of looking at, you know, these sub, you know, major debilitating, but sort of subclinical underlying infections that, m- you know, might not raise your body temperature to, you know, 102, 103 degrees, but you might go from 98.6 to 99.6 or something like that, and you're just a little bit off um and it's it, i'm just pointing out that the data seem to think that these are real things that are not to be dismissed um by people and people should be aware of them and and that it, they're actually calling this disorder long COVID. pretty cool okay we're going to take a break for some brief underwriting announcements you are listening to the health 411 radio program on 1077 the Bronx and 1077 the Bronx. Com.
0: This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. Health 411 is underwritten by the Health Studies Institute of Ride University. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Carp, only on 1077 The Bronx.
1: 1077 The Bronc, 1077TheBronc.com from the Bronx studios at Ryder University. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp here with Mandy McLean. And we are talking about some of the behavioral and mental health issues associated with the coronavirus pandemic. In the first segment, we talked about mental health risks being particularly, being issues for the college age population, 18 to 24 year old group. We talked about COVID not just being a short disease, it's a mind as well as a body disease that can last weeks and months, even outside the times when people are infectious. And I want to expand our discussion a little bit in this, in this, this segment and to talk about um, some of the, depending on your perspective, opportunities and risks that are thing out there as it relates to people's behavior. For example, um, there are sayings that say no crisis should go unexploited. Have you heard that kind of expression before?
2: I actually have never heard that before.
1: Okay, well, let's discuss it a little bit. Uh, When people say things like that, what are they trying to say? They're trying to say, let's take advantage of the opportunities that are in front of us. Let's take advantage of it and let's not be overwhelmed by this negative way of thinking. Maybe we can benefit. Maybe we can make money. Maybe we can get ahead of the curve when we come through these sort of things. And this is something, especially in the mental health behavioral um, realm that we're sort of t- talking about today, where I think advertising, people trying to sell products is something that we should all be very, very aware of. Because um, we're starting to see on, you know, TV ads, or magazines, or newspapers, or on the internet with those pop-up kinds of ads, we t- at least I'm, I'm going to ask you, do you agree? Are you starting to see things Products being advertised that are promising some sort of peace of mind. Yeah. You're starting to see that. So what are they taking advantage of?
2: They're taking advantage of like the opportunity right now where a lot of people don't have that peace of mind and trying to like create it in their product mm-hmm. to just try to like boost their sales because they don't have that peace of mind or that certainty right now. Right. So they're trying to gain it as well.
1: Exactly, Mandy. So what's happening is the pandemic is providing an opportunity for the advertising industry. And they're not going to let any crisis go unexploited and unmaximized. And so if you have a product, I don't know, for if you're selling, and I've, I, I've seen this, if, st- if you're selling stuffed animal toys to children, right, what's the great opportunity now? Create a commercial where you show, oh, you know, children can't sleep, children are anxious, buy this toy, you know, this stuffed bear, this stuffed gorilla, whatever it is, and your child will sleep more restfully. If you are selling something that's sort of in the unregulated realm of nutritional supplements, whether it's, you know, melatonin or GABA amino butyric acid or you know, some of these nutrient kinds of things that are supposed to promote calmness and wellness. What do you do? This is an opportunity for you to sell your product. In that world, right, it's sort of a, it's that's the world of nutritional supplements is the buyer beware world because you don't always know if the things that you're, you're, you're you know, eating most of the time, or taking a pill, which is basically eating, um, are actually going to work. You don't know the dose to take. You don't know the timing to take it. None of this has worked out. And as long as you don't make a medical claim, right, the the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, basically leaves you alone. And what they say is, oh, you know, do your research, find out what's real and not real. Well, a lot of people, especially people who are having anxiety, depression, um, other kinds of mental health issues don't always have the ability, time, the willingness, or the energy to do that kind of research, nor understand what they're actually getting. And some people might, you know, expect the Food and Drug Administration to regulate that and tell them what, what's a real claim and what's a not a real claim. Um, but the FDA, that's not their role, um, and. It's, it gets into but where is personal responsibility? Should the, you know, individuals be able to make decisions or should the federal government be telling people what to do? Um, and it, that, that's a whole other issue that translates to a lot of the pandemic um, things that are happening around the country. Um, how about if you are um, selling something like um, candy? Wouldn't it be great if you had like a kind of gumdrops or candy that would, soothing, that would give people peace, peace of mind. That would be really cool. Yeah, that'd be great, you know, if you're selling some sort of, um, lavender extract. Wouldn't it be great if you advertise now? You'd get people's attention, especially in a time where anxiety is high, depression is high. Yeah. And so the advertising world is, is taking advantage of that. They're sort of exploiting it, um, And and this is real. I mean, this is, you know, not pretend stuff. Even, I want to say, even now, we see one of the hottest areas of products being available is the CBD oils, all these, you know, cannabinoids that are being sold, you know, without the THC part. But even here in New Jersey, you know, you have all this, you know, CBD oils, CBD kinds of things, CBD candies. These things are being promoted as, you know, treatments for not necessarily against the virus, but all of the, mental health and behavioral issues associated with the virus. And that includes things people are fearful for their jobs, people are fearful for their, you know, elderly parents, people are fearful for their, you know, children, for their other loved ones, the people they care about. Um, people are losing jobs, and you know, people's you know the the, the the all these people with big brains said, "Oh, you have to have six months of reserves of income." This is before the pandemic. Well, now we're you know six or so months into it, some people who have been furloughed or laid off might be through that. You know, yeah. Through, through their through their buffer that you know the, the the all the all the you know smart people in the financial world told them, "Oh, you have to have six months of you know reserve income available." Well. We're at that point. And so, yeah, what are you going to do now? And what people do is they get scared, they get nervous. Um, People are cooped up in their homes trying to, you know, social distance and all that stuff. It's stressful, right? And wouldn't it be great if you had a magic pillow, Mandy, that you could cuddle up with the pillow and everything else was good? How about those uh, weighted blanket kind of things that you see out there?
2: Those are actually really cool. I really like weighted blankets, (laughs) but then it's like, what if it gets, like, too heavy while, like, you're
1: sleeping? (laughs) I don't think you're going to suffocate if that's what you're going to. I think the worst that would happen is you get really hot and warm.
2: I mean, I'm pretty small. I feel like... (laughs)
1: you feel like the blanket might be too big you'd be trapped under there um i I, hopefully that's not that's not the case hopefully if that happened you would kick off the blanket if you were sleeping hopefully yeah but i could see a world where the people who are selling those things are taking advantage of the covid19 and of the mental health issues that are part of that in fact i would expect if you were a really good ad agency you would be doing that because what's your job in an ad agency it's to
2: create ads and market what you're selling. So I
1: mean, absolutely. And separate time. and separate people from their money for things they might not really need. But if you're selling a product and you, they there, buy you, there you go. And you, you see all this stuff out there and there's going to be more and more of it. Um, I'm willing to bet uh, you know uh, the things that I saw recently with like a wine commercial on TV where somebody, you know, said, you know, we're going to need lots of booze to get through this problem. So, what are they telling people to do? They're basically telling people to self-medicate. They are. You know, drinking this beer or this wine is going to help you get through this problem. And as we talked about in the previous segments, more and more people are having mental health issues. Now, is that ethical? Are are, are the ad agencies preying upon a weakened populace
2: I think it's really unethical because they are just preying upon people who are weak right now and they're doing it to support themselves which kind of like I understand because it's not like you want to do it it's more like it's your job you have to do it but then at the same time you're like supporting people to do things that are more self-destructive in a time that you're really uncertain about everything
1: True, there is a lot of uncertainty, and that that breeds a lot of the anxiety and the fear and the scare and the depression. But the, the, the role of the advertising agency is to separate, is to get you to buy whatever they're selling, not if you really need it or not, but to get you to buy it. There's a whole field of, you know, neuromarketing, and it's all how does the human brain make decisions? How do people decide, not only in neuroeconomics, what stock to buy? And why is it get easier to get people to buy a stock and it's harder for them to sell it? But also for marketing, you know, ever, you, you know, have you ever done a search for something and then all of a sudden on your phone or your uh, computer, you start getting ads for that all the time. Yeah. And ads tend to be certain kinds of colors, ads tend to be, um, you know, in certain places in the text you know, they tend not do the more successful ads at the beginning of articles because people figure out how the human brain works and what people are looking at and the marketers take advantage of it. And if you have a time now where everybody, how often do you have a time where everybody's experiencing this pandemic? Everybody knows about it. What a great opportunity to connect with people, to tell them that they need something that they don't know they really need. And yes. I... Right, And that's what marketers always do. But now everybody, the entire audience, is having a shared experience. Right, Irrespective of how old you are. If you're old enough to know what's going on in the community, this is a shared experience. And if you're a marketer, what a great way to connect with a huge, broad audience, in my opinion. It is. And so if if your job is to connect with as many people as possible, wouldn't you want to do that?
2: That's true, because this is a very like... It's a very what's the word? This is like a once in a lifetime opportunity. Hopefully it is.
1: <laughs> Hopefully, yes.
2: To do things like that and it's like right now marketers everywhere are probably doing like stellar jobs because everybody is feeling the same or like thinking the same, so it's very easy right. to like market what you're selling. Yeah.
1: If only to connect. If we could connect to steal a line from Ian Forrester. Anyway, we'll, we're going to be right back with more, more health care talk after some brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077 thebronkcom
0: This is Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. Health 411 is underwritten by the Health Studies Institute of Ride University. We're back with Dr. Jonathan Carp, only on 1077 The Bronx.
1: 1077 the bronc 1077 the Bronx.com. we are recording from the rider Bronx studios you're listening to health 411 i'm professor jonathan carp mandy mclean and i are talking about some of the behavioral consequences of the covid19 pandemic and we've talked about mental health issues in young adults we've talked about uh, covid being a long disease long haulers who are having mental health issues long after the viral infection at least the major parts of it have subsided Um, and we've talked about the idea that people are going to take advantage of the mental health issues in advertising and business to sort of you know get their businesses going again and um, sort of promote the things that are counteracting some of the mental health issues that people are having related to that that's also related to human behavior which is very very hard to change Um, And there are huge fields about this. I want to talk about what is being done, not just in the United States, but internationally in a pursuit for a vaccine. And the idea of taking a vaccine, much like people get the flu vaccine, and the idea is, oh, if I get a flu vaccine, that you won't get the flu every year. Or if you get a measles vaccine or a polio vaccine, that you won't get polio or the measles um, whatever disease you're talking about. So people are looking, scientists are looking, internationally, not just in the United States, um, but around the world for a vaccine. And so there's sort of this uh, vaccine nationalism that's going on, or there's this competition between um, you know, the, Chi- the Chinese scientists, the American scientists, and the Russian scientists. And the recording of this show sort of corresponds, uh, roughly in time, um, that one country has sort of saying that they've got or very close to developing a vaccine, and that's the Russians. And it's been called in, on, on, in social media and around the world on the internet, the Sputnik V is sort of the Russian COVID-19 vaccine. And what's happening is around the world And people are tracking the discussions of this. There's all these ideas about vaccine nationalism, this competitiveness, you know, in a world where we're trying to make America great again. The idea was that, you know, Americans are going to develop this vaccine, American companies are going to do it, and American companies are going to, you know, distribute it. The the possibility is other countries might get there first. And details of it um, are not widely known, Um, but there's been a lot of activity um, on the internet about it, especially internationally. What's interesting about it is it seems to be not a one-shot vaccine. It looks like the kind of vaccine that you'd have to get and have to get every couple months um, to sort of maintain immunity if, it, if indeed it does work. But what does that say about people um, w- worldwide? Go, go on. I was going to go in a certain direction, Mandy, but go on.
2: Well, I mean, if it's one general vaccine that we need i feel like we should all be able to like just have a vaccine and not make it like so political like it's something that we all need so i feel like it should be a universal thing but then as well like when it comes to the vaccine is it going to be something that's mandatory because like you were saying we do have people that do not get vaccinations for, like, religion reasons or just, like, other reasons that's, like
1: that. That's where I was going to go with under the umbrella. You read my mind a little bit. um, To under the umbrella of behavioral issues related to COVID-19. And you're really, you're right. In a perfect world, world with, you know, Without the countries and the nationalism and every country saying it's better than the other country, us versus them, you'd like to think that if humans developed a vaccine that worked, that was safe and effective, it would be distributed to everybody. And there's, a, there's an ethical thing related to that. However, that's not the world we live in. Um, and chances are, given that how many ways that vaccines could work, we're probably going to end up in the long haul with multiple kinds of vaccines that work in different ways. An example of that is right now there, there are two kinds of polio vaccine. There's an attenuated virus polio vaccine where you there, the particles are uh, of the virus are non-infectious; they're not disease-causing, but they're sort of live particles, there's also a dead vi- dead polio virus vaccine. There's two different kinds, there's two different ways to immunize against polio. Chances are we're going to have more than one way eventually um, to have an, a vaccine against COVID. And there's going to be, you know, competition about who's going to be able to distribute, you know, who's going to make it, who's going to distribute it. There's a big, a big business there. But where I wanted to go is exactly where you went, is in a world that we have people who are anti-vaxxers, who don't believe in vaccines, that they think that vaccines are, you know, rich people's trying to control different kinds of people, or the government is trying to control people. What's going to happen when those people realize that there's this, this worldwide pandemic, and I think people are figuring out, <laughs> in quote, unquote, that this is a real, it's a real thing. It's not a pretend illness. Like, what happens to their behavior and their mental health when you have this cognitive dissonance between what you believe or what you've spouted out when it doesn't really affect you. You know, it's sort of this esoteric, I'm not gonna vaccinate myself. I'm not gonna vaccinate my kids. There's all these evil things in the vaccines. The government is trying to control us with vaccines. How do I know the vaccines are not gonna make me sterile and all this sort of stuff. What happens when there is a COVID-19 Vaccine and you humans have this cognitive dissonance between things that they've spouted off, and then the reality is, well, here's a disease that's you know can be sort of nasty that you can prevent. What do you do?
2: I feel like people are still going to be like they're not going to want to get it, and then it's going to cause a lot more like problems, like psychologically and things like that, because it's going to be like how you feel versus what's really going on, and then you're going to get probably a lot of like anxiety from it because I feel like there will be backlashes to not getting the vaccination.
1: Mm-hmm. Right, it, it, and it's sort of the joke. It's like if you don't want to put your name in your clothes when you go to away to sleepaway camp, you say, well, all the clothes that don't have names in it are going to be yours. Right. (laughs) It's sort of that idea that the immunologically that's called herd, you know, herd immunity. They're waiting for herd immunity saying, well, I don't have to get vaccinated because everybody else is vaccinated. Um, And that's that's not really that that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. It's how diseases can actually spread. Um, And you also indicated another important thing. Do you make your decisions based on sort of instinct or how you feel Or do you want to use data and make data-driven, evidence-based decisions in how you lead your life?
2: It should definitely be more of like a data-based decision, because if it's something that everybody needs, it shouldn't be just like a personal choice.
1: That would be nice in an ideal world. However, that's not how people make decisions in our world. People make decisions based on how they feel or what they wish they were, things were being. You know, I wish, you know polio wasn't a thing i i wish you know you know there's a there, there's a vaccine now against you know um genital warts you know the virus that causes general warts okay. but people don't gardasil is, is what it's called i never well, knew that yeah so you, do you get the vaccine or not you know and they and they said well i you know i wish general warts didn't exist but it, it exists you know, you just can't wish it away. And people make these decisions without making evidence. And that was one, talking about healthcare care and mental health, that was one of the big uh, controversial and political issues around the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Should physicians and doctors be making evidence-based decisions about what they do? And should insurance companies fund those things? Or should what's funded and not funded um, be sort of opinion or instinct or belief, belief system? Um, decided. And, and those discussions are still going on, and we see it in this country in terms of politics and, um, and things like that. But my point coming back to mental health, what happens in this case in a really, really new situation where we're dealing with the boundary between what's known and unknown? COVID-19 is sort of a new infection for, you know, affecting the world worldwide. People are going to have a disconnect between some of the things that they spout off And the data that says, you know, these vaccines hopefully will be safe and effective. That being said, no vaccine is 100% effective. So you're going to say, oh, Billy Joe Bob got the vaccine, but he still got sick. Well, that still happens, even with the flu. You know, there are, you know, cases where vaccines are not 100% effective. Um, And I think it's going to create more and more mental health issues for people. And um, what do you think about that, Mandy? Do you agree or am I am I am I having a mental health crisis right now by suggesting that?
2: No, I agree with you. I think this will leave a long-lasting like mental health effect on everybody, especially like because some people have been quarantined longer than yeah. other people, like younger children or say like some people who are more socially awkward and they have a harder time in school. When they go back, they're going to have an even harder time because they've missed out on those other chances to be Social and it's gonna leave like so many different um... yeah
1: uncharted territory. The psychosocial consequences yeah of this pandemic on not just how your lungs work or how your kidney works something like that, but behaviorally how your brain is working are gonna are gonna be very very profound. Um, I think the vaccines are one example of that, but but psychosocial development, um, the socialization of people is going to be very, very different. If you were if you had a, a younger child and it was in a critical period of development during these times and the child sort of isolated, you know, um, is that going to affect the ability to
2: it most bond with people, will.
1: bond with people later on in their lives? It's an issue. Think about how many, People you might know who have behavioral kinds of issues going on in their lives, whether it's like, you know, autism or something like that. A lot of those treatments and behaviors are based on one-to-one people being really close to each other, you know, reading, you know, teaching people to read facial expressions. Um, that's not happening. For months at a time, I could see a lot of biobehavioral setbacks in those treatments kinds of settings even if even if the therapy is going on people having to wear face masks like you're wearing a mask now mandy i I can't i see your eyes but i can't see your nose i can't tell if you're sticking your tongue out at me or you know grimacing in pain (laughs) having to listen to me i can't see any of that you know and and so all that ability to read facial expressions those things that sort of transcend cultures is sort of hidden from us and that might have consequences on development and um people's mental health going forward. And, um, and so the point of my conversation with you right now is that just people should be aware of these things uh, when it comes to the changes in society. There's a lot of debates about the isolation, um, closing things, schools opening and closing, businesses opening and closing, restaurants, all that sort of stuff that changes people's behavior. As it relates specifically to the disease and the science of it, we're going to have vaccines, whether it's a Russian, you know, Sputnik V vaccine or it's some other vaccine. And there's vaccine nationalism. There, you know, there are people who don't buy German cars or won't buy Japanese cars, or only buy American. What's going to happen if the best vaccines might come from Italy, China or Russia? And I think it could cause a lot of um, behavioral issues in this country and um, it's something to be aware of. Um, unfortunately, we are running out of time. Um, Thank you for listening. This is 1077 The Bronc, bronc 1077thebronc.com, and this is the Health 411 radio program. This program is part of the Ryder University's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of healthcare. I hope today's program has given you things to think about in terms of the behavioral responses on many, many levels to the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you, Mandy, for engaging in conversation with me. If you have questions and or comments about this program, please email us at health411 at rider.edu.